0: And welcome back to the bodybuilding dietitians podcast thank you so much for joining us today for what is now part two of our comp prep roundtable with alex thomas kyle weber joey cantlin and brandon kempter if you are still yet to listen to part one we would highly recommend that you go and check out that episode first and of course if you do enjoy this podcast please remember to take a screenshot and post it to your social media stories Make sure to tag the hosts and all of the guests whose social medias you can find in the show notes below. But without further ado, let's jump back into it. So, apart from just the timeline that competitors can expect, let's touch on some other aspects of competition prep.
1: I think, yeah, I think an interesting one. We haven't talked about training at all in any of the phases. So, we could potentially chat about some, mm-hmm. some things we see that should be done potentially or things that we see that. Haven't been done or implemented quite so well. What are what are some crazy things like? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna like take over. What are some crazy things in the last like year that you are like everyone's heard and like don't name names or anything like that, but just like what are some crazy things that we've heard and seen?
2: I literally live in my box, so I haven't heard nothing.
1: Oh, <laughs> right, what, all right, Switzerland.
3: <laughs> actually,
1: actually, bit, yeah, go go. But well, I, I just see a lot of people who just a very unorganized with their training in, in the preparation phase. And we know that as, as you get leaner and leaner, basically your, your maximal recoverable volume goes down. And that way, your, basically your effective volume and your maximum recoverable volume is, are very close together, which means um, in the improvement season, when you have a high ability to recover, um, you do have a much wider gap between those two variables. And people doing, I don't know, six sets of squats in the gym, and like then followed by like a a giant set on leg press and then some german volume volume training thrown in there and then they expect to recover or maintain (laughs) and progress um during the preparation phase i just think that's personally not not the way i would construct it and on that there was i I don't think it's still around but there was this um there was like a, a pseudo myth being perpetuated where it was like if you maintain your one rm deadlift then you haven't lost any muscle at all through your prep. Don't even deadlift in the off season. But if I can maintain that deadlift and prep, then you've, <laughs> then you, then you've retained your muscle where it's like, you know, like, like because you're lighter, you like neurological drive, skill acquisition can improve like momentum and speed of movement because you're lighter improves. Like, so anyway, like, yeah, it's, it's a funny one.
0: So Brandon, what are a few different manipulations you might make with your athletes in regards to their training program? in comparison to like the off season to what you would expect from them or program for them during a prep phase?
2: Yeah, I think training wise <clears throat> as a general piece, um, you know, I work with the premise that, uh, in the off season, the most dynamic part is your training As in nutrition. It's, it's pretty stable. You make small adjustments. The training varies a lot more mesocycle to mesocycle and the opposite is kind of true in contest prep. In condos prep, nutrition kind of takes the limelight as the more dynamic piece that changes, you know, week to week when slash as necessary. And training becomes a little bit more stable. And generally speaking, I'm quite consistent moving training cycle to training cycle because I want a base to assess performance um, performance changes. And I don't want to be changing huge amounts, metacycle to metacycle, that requires the athlete to to acclimate and cause, you know, if there's a whole lot of novel training stress, we're going to get a whole whack of muscle damage, which we don't really need uh, as we're moving through a contest prep. But definitely as recovery uh, changes throughout the prep, we adjust our either our volume in terms of sets, but usually first off the bat is our movement selections, changing movements as sort of Jack was sort of uh, leaning towards before, changing movements to basically movements that have a better stimulus to fatigue ratio, so better SFR. So maybe going from say if the individual is deadlifting in the off season, going from deadlifts to trap bar deadlifts to Romanian deadlifts, where we're still accumulating stress on the in the appropriate structures, but it's hopefully costing us a little less in terms of systemic fatigue, particularly the central components. So yeah, training quite simplistic. Um, moving through the block, uh, sorry, moving through the contest prep, change a few movement selections, uh, adjust the volumes
1: if if needed. Yeah, mm-hmm. generally. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think we can all think back to the time when people, well, I'm sure many people still think this, but I mean, in the off-season, people did five to eight reps. In prep, you automatically switch to 12 reps plus, pump out the volume, and you'll get shredded instantly. So that's uh, unfortunately not the case, or maybe fortunately. (laughs) What do you mean, man? That's what (laughs) I've been like basing my last few years off. So So Kyle, what are some horror stories, bro? What have you heard in the last- 12 to 18 months.
3: I was going to say, uh, I, re- I really hope I don't get singled out for this one because my horror stories are just relating to myself. <laughs> <You> know, I, <laughs>
0: uh,
3: I'm the quintessential meathead when it comes to training in the contest prep. So I, I really don't want my advice to be taken as advice and more just a, an, actual, uh, an actual reflection as to what does happen when you don't take training seriously. You know, I ended my uh, piriformis was probably seven years ago trying to deadlift 150 kilos of one hand. Because um, I saw someone build on YouTube once. And I was like, oh, I can do that. Yeah, So are yeah. trying to
1: be Jujumufu or whatever that guy's name <laughs> yeah, is.
3: exactly. And so, yeah, I lost about 200 kilos off of my uh, off, off my debt. And it took me about five months to be able to even get underneath the bar again, um, which was incredibly debilitating. Uh, the way that I approach training in any part of the prep, it, for me, it's about... Just enjoying it. And I don't like to put blocks in there. So that's why I'm saying, you know, this isn't, this is not evidence-based. This is something that a, a coach needs to be able to to apply to somebody. And if you are taking it from a position of your, you're you're an elite athlete and you're looking to get the best out of your prep, you definitely need to have one of these periodized blocks that, that Brenda and Jack are talking about. For myself, it's it's always been about just trying to enjoy whatever it is that I'm doing. And if that means that I'm pushing myself super hard and trying to go above and beyond, then that's something that I would do. But it wasn't until later on that after I, I'm waking up with injuries and being sore every day, that I realized that this is not a sustainable approach. And I, at the end of the day, if we were to look at top bodybuilders, I'd rather be Jay Cutler approach than then be able to still keep training and stuff the way that he is doing now and looking great than the Ronnie Coleman approach and being butchered. So mm. I think that, uh, above anything um, I will say that I do still feel that in a contest prep uh, it, the focus needs to be on just making sure you are stimulating and engaging the muscle uh, appropriately without doing too much uh, for me I've adopted the approach of less is always best uh, I've I've experimented a lot with different training approaches and I've found that over the years I just need to train less and be able to make sure I can get in get out now I'll have sessions that go for you know half an hour and I can still maintain and and grow from there because it's focused on making sure that I can establish a decent enough feeling and and level of engagement within what it is I'm trying to work. So meathead approach is do what you feel like. Um but obviously that's still within reason. It's not complete get in there and smash out GBT seven days a week and then try to swap it again in three weeks time. Um, Mm -hmm. Any anyone that is trying to change their are programming really, really frequently and has absolutely zero plan uh, whatsoever, then that, that's a bit of a horror story for me. Um, I can't count the amount of clients that I've had over the years that would be on some type of plan and then they, and then they get bored and then it's three weeks or two weeks afterwards and they want to change it again and go, my plan is not working. And I go, well, it's not the plan that's not working. It's the fact that you're negating the fact that training adaptations take a long time and we can actually be pretty content with finding something and continue it on, um, making sure that we are progressing.
0: So. And it, it almost comes back to that using intuitive eating as an example. You know, if we actually listen to our intuition when our energy availability is low, there's it's a, a lot of things idea. that we do not
3: trust do. your body. Or you intuitive want. eating is a terrible thing. Yeah, I'll be okay. the first to put my hand up and say that. Yeah, it's, Don't it's not intuitively a good idea.
0: train because you probably won't be training. The yeah, last you, you few can't. Weeks you can't. Rep. You
1: can't trust yourself. Yeah. The walk to the gym is enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the dread, the dread yeah. of training when you really like. So Um, when
0: it comes to nutrition during a competition phase, I would like to know, like, are you under the impression that people should be following more of a macro-based flexible dieting approach or are you advocates for meal plans or do you think it's highly individual?
1: I just want to quickly touch on something that Kyle just said there. Mm -hmm. So Kyle, when he first spoke about it, he was like, oh, you know, people who come from a sporting background tend to look at it differently. Kyle came from a sporting background. And whilst if they look at it seasonally and have a bit more of a natural competitive approach to it and so they're better suited for prepping in terms of like the mindset, there is one drawback and he just spoke about it. They train like fucking hard mm. and they, they, they can train hard very easily. And so for Kyle, the trick for him was do a little bit less, like less effective. And so for someone who comes from a very elite sporting background, that's probably a really good coaching cue. But if you don't come from that, Chances are, like you guys said, you, unless you've like done and actually tried to take and consistently taking yourself to RP 10, zero reps in reserve, chances are you're on the other side of the coin, which is the majority of people. And you're actually under training. Yeah. Yeah. Funny you say that we actually did a podcast recently where we discussed the topic. Like people often say these days, you're training too hard. You're, you need to worry about reaching failure, Mm. but People need to worry about not reaching failure because people don't train hard enough. Yeah, I, I would say not eight to nine out of 10 people don't. But mm. the, the the people who come from elite athlete backgrounds, like Kyle, like myself, three knee surgeries in three years, like less is more for us. Mm. But if you don't come from that background, then no. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So nutritional strategies. Yeah. Flexible dieting, meal plans, whatever. I'll just hand over to the guys. Yeah. 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 Let's hear it.
2: Yeah, sure. I, I, I think... From a coaching perspective, I don't. I'm not the person that conforms to one specific mode of application. I think like it, like pretty much anything and everything. It's contextually specific. I think there's pros and cons of each, and it should be tailored to the individual. However, I do have a a bit of a bias towards running a fixed plan in the contest preparation, uh, just to reduce your 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 cloud of variance. I mean. Uh, yeah, as you know, there's, there's always going to be some variability in um, one's, one's nutrition intake if you are varying the food selections. Even if you're making the macronutrients meet, um, it really depends on you know what food table you're going by, et cetera, et cetera. So I would rather work off the basis of precision over accuracy. So if we're putting together a plan, we know what we're getting in. We know what our expense is looking like roughly within the limitations of how accurately and precisely we can track it. And we can assess the outcome and we can make logical manipulations and move forward with quite possibly more predictability. Also, one of the other benefits for us, uh, with running a fixed plans if we're standardizing the daily food volume, changes in body weight are gonna have a higher correlated power to changes in body composition. So there's a few benefits there. And the last benefit I'll sort of bring to the table, which is this list is by no means um exhaustive, is uh decision fatigue, which although for all of us guys who are sitting here right now in a euchloric environment, doesn't seem like really the issue. At the tail end of the contest preparation, as I know you guys can um, relate having just come out of a contest prep, you know, at the end of your, your condus prep, you want to free up as much of your mental for other important things in your day. You want everything to be as automated as possible. And I think a fixed plan really can be beneficial in that regard.
0: Yeah, Jack and I can certainly speak to that in having, it's almost like a combination of having a meal plan, but also following specific macronutrient targets and having your own Mm -hmm. flexibility within there. So it's
1: just, yeah, following, although it's not quite a meal plan, it's where we're eating the same things every day regardless, Mm -hmm. because especially as Brandon said, decision fatigue reduces your food focus. And not to mention the accuracy, like if you're having something different every day, or if you're picking up a protein bar, which has 62 ingredients, the accuracy is gonna be compromised. Yeah, and And then
0: then in that case, that's just where you need to make sure that you're taking those fundamental nutritional boxes to say, okay, you're basically eating the same thing every single day, but is there enough nutrient variety within your day to ensure that you're getting enough iron, enough calcium, Mm enough omega-3s, you know, enough different types of plants and fiber sources, those sort of things. So it can be a fixed plan, but there can still be a lot of variety and nutrition within that plan.
1: Hey guys, just a reminder that we offer coaching services, which you can find on our website by searching the Bodybuilding Dietitians on Google or via the show notes below. We coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Yeah, and the thing with it as well, like while a calorie is a calorie and a carb is a carb, if we get a bomb calorimeter, then, and, and like we look at it, then the reality is, is like carb, carbohydrates, depending on the food source will vary up to, you know, 35% Mm -hmm. depending on that. And so your consistency and accuracy, even though for tracking, we think, Hey, it's four calories per gram. It's not. So if you are eating the same foods, then, you know, you are keeping within your calorie range quite consistently. Mm -hmm. And look, if you're not worrying about like trying to win a national title or anything like that, probably doesn't really matter that much, but if we're keeping with consistency, it does. And then on the, I guess, I guess, and then catering to the mental health and like longevity and the mental health side of things, we know that physiologically and psychologically prep creates a way more neurotic environment. And then we actually have data to suggest that the more you're planning a meal and you're changing ingredients and thinking about it when your food focus is already high, you have a propensity to potentially double and triple your neuroses acutely within those periods. And so looking, you know, we've all done it, right. It's like, Oh, I'm going to try this amazing pancake recipe. And then you think about these nine different ingredients, you got all these diet things in there and somehow you've managed to get protein in there as well. And you're like, Oh, this is great, but you don't feel satiated. And then half the time you feel really gastrointestinally disrupted as a result of the fact that you've got all these artificial sweeteners and like weird fiber sources in there as well, that your body isn't normally taking in either.
0: But also it just, it does really draw so much away from your cognition that you need to be applying to other aspects of your life. You know, a lot of us, we've gone through, university studies you know we're students or we are we're a family member or we have a career like we need to be dedicating our cognitive power to other areas we can't be thinking about ooh, i could have this for lunch or i could have this for lunch right like uh, brandon and i
1: need to take my kid to school yeah
0: exactly because you literally you will you will waste so much time thinking about food And it's such a distraction. And then you will miss out on other components of life when your energy availability, it is already compromised. So don't dig yourself into an even deeper hole. So I really love that point of really reducing that decision fatigue.
2: Yeah. I think for the right person, it's not, it, it, it reduces the stress so much because it's just like, that's just, there it is plain as day do it. I mean, here's the thing. People argue like that's not sustainable. And I would say contest preparation is not supposed to be sustainable. It's only in place for the duration that it's necessary and then you get out. But it's okay to do something that's not sustainable um, for a time. I mean, if you had a financial goal, you would work 70 hours plus a week or whatever. Can you do that forever? That's absolutely not, but you can do it for a time. And the same goes with contest prep. This is just, you know, you're not gonna run that food plan forever. And that's your off season is for your flexible dieting, your intuitive eating, etc. But in the context of contest prep, it's just, it's simplistic for athlete and coach. Um, but again, you, you shouldn't be married to that thought process. That's the only way there are going to be people who would rather adopt a more flexible approach, but you know, you got to be logical about it from a coaching perspective.
0: Yeah. I guess that's when it just comes down to really knowing your athlete and having gone through an off season with them and a pre-prep phase with them. But really just having them understand that if they do have specific goals, they are eventually going to have to do specific things.
1: Mm. So back to the horror stories. My one in the last 12 months has just been all the food that I see people eating backstage. And they're like, <laughs> when, they're, the when they're, when they're, and when they're, when they're, when they're peaking and like pumping yeah. up and like all the foods that are offered depending on the show. So it's like certain show will have like all the donuts and then another one will have like all the chocolates and pizza and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And they're just smashing and thinking like, Oh my God, my pump is so incredible. And then You've it's like, that extra
0: Yeah, you're like, your, your veins are like maybe one more mil
1: dilated, but your stomach's distended by like another five centimeters because yeah. you haven't been eating that food. So
0: I think what definitely tops up for this past season at one of the shows, I saw someone with an entire bag of bread and a huge <laughs> jar of Nutella, and they were just dipping pieces of bread into the Nutella and just eating it. And I'm like, Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> You're on stage in 15 minutes.
1: But yeah, I mean, I'm still hearing stuff. I mean, look, I'm on the claim side, so I hear a bit of the more darker side of things. Um, we've, there's been a couple of incidents and reports of hypothyroidism mm-hmm. um, as a result of PrEP. So like low EA induced. Three of, There those three, two of which even like a year or two later, um, it hasn't come back. Like wow. regular function hasn't come back. So now they're medicated for the rest of their life. So that's like sort of the dangerous side of things. Um, How much is the coach, how much is the diet to play versus, um, you know, susceptibility, like the individual susceptibility to it and predisposition to it beforehand. You don't know, but we know that, hey, look, like, hey, we're going to have low EA for a bit. Let's try and keep it above 20. We can potentially achieve that in a prep. But, you know, there are still some plans floating around that are 900 calories for a female who's... And it's from the start. It's not even at the end. It's like, okay, you've started prep. Is nine hundred calories. Yeah, like legitimately, like like my partner, um, she has, she has. This is a throwback to like, I think she competed like five, six years ago. She doesn't compete anymore. She does CrossFit, um, hence why we get along. And she, not that I love CrossFit, just just because she doesn't prep anymore. I could never date someone who preps. Sorry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) And um, uh, she had on her plan, and she sent it to me that she had, and it was eleven hundred calorie meal plan. She would have been the lightest at um. 58 kilos and she was training 12 times a week for it and so on the plan it was 37 grams of beef <laughs> of rum steak 37 grams right like it was like to the gram and i just remember seeing that being like like that's just so like unfeasible mm-hmm. yeah. like surely we can get it to 80 grams
2: where's the post muscle protein synthesis mate <laughs> I
1: know, here I it, you know, it is I iron intake either on that so. no no so like there's that obviously there's like the peak week water strategies yeah. um what prevalence have you seen with that like you guys were competing recently mm-hmm. how like what percentage did you observe like were you, were you like i mean i mean you're competing so you're focusing on yourselves but yeah. did you notice the other competitors and did you notice enough to get a bearing of how many people were dehydrating versus mm. staying you hydrated yeah i think i think i might have done a little bit more than you so because um i put out a video on youtube about my peak week strategy and then as a result of that naturally have people messaging you about oh are you are you really drinking water during peak week or are, you, are you really having water on show day you're allowed to drink that there's a lot of surprise in that regard and i think as a result like i think people uh, of still the inclination that they have to dehydrate themselves on on show day mm-hmm. and 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 stuff like that which is which is unfortunate I feel bad for them
0: well I feel like Brandon is like the king of peaking so Brandon I want to hear do you, is there ever a time and a place for manipulating hydration during a peak week
2: uh, I don't really see it I, I can't think of a logical reason as to why you'd really want to manipulate it from the perspective of hypohydration i think the goal should always be you hydration but if i had the choice between hypo or hyper i'd be going hyper because what's the worst that happens <clears throat> we're just going to pass a little bit more fluid you but drown uh, that's the worst you drown <laughs> and die
1: dilute your electrolytes <laughs> no but yeah, i'm not talking that's about extreme. hypernatremia here yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about marginal level hy- hyperhydration is you mean like 20 30
1: 50 percent, something like that
2: no, no, no. I'm talking about like, I just drank a liter of water and diluted my blood posmo- os- osmolality and now I'm going to go to the bathroom past that so I can maintain, you know, homeostatic. Yeah, okay. like, really minimal. But I can't really see a, 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 re- a reason for it. The only recommendation I generally have when it comes to fluid consumption is to taper down fluid for the last two hours leading into the category. And the simple... Rationale behind that is that I don't want an individual to drink two liters of water just before they go on stage and have that sitting in their stomach for a couple of minutes and have to go to the bathroom. And realistically, you're not going to dehydrate in two hours in a nice, cool backstage environment with a 40-minute pump-up. But no, I don't really see a reason for that. But I will say this, over the past, I reckon over the past eight years, there is a lot less people doing just really crazy things backstage, or at least... Like I said to you, Alex, I, I do live in my box. I, I live at I I have my four walls here. I've he renting COVID.
1: Like the ability to go to shows is limited.
2: Well, I mean, look, I go to shows when I can, but like I mean, I don't I don't I train at home, work at home, like I don't have so so really I focus solely on my clients. I don't really know what any other coach does anywhere. But just observing backstage, over the last, like I said, five to seven, eight years, there is so much less crazy stuff than they used to be. I mean, I remember overalls, you know, the the presenter at the iCN show would have a bottle of water there and be like when all mates like wavering left and right, like do you want a bottle of water now? It's like no, no, no it's fine, it's fine. It was this common thing to do is to to dehydrate. So, um, you know, myself included, I I've, I've been there, but not not to the point of which some of the other guys have. Then in the first year I competed, and then after that it it's um became much more normal not to do that. So, I, I think that as a community we're getting much the, the mean average uh intelligence is increasing when it comes to connor's preparation
1: yeah i think it's a net win definitely the like the shows that i've been to recently where i'd noticed it the most are the wbff shows mm-hmm. uh, i don't know if anyone's been to them all no? right mm-hmm. cool i'm the lone <laughs> ranger um and obviously being an untested federation the use of diuretics and stuff um like it, like you know is it, something that goes on there as well um and yeah, there's a lot of dehydration and hypohydration, like methods being utilized to optimize a you know stage presentation and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can see it with their lights as well. And then depending on the time that they get their tans on, it really like it impacts the way that they're sweating, and they're only sweating from certain parts of their body. But the tan is running really, really significant. But a well hydrated competitor will have the tan on; it'll stick. It's not going to affect it, and you're not going to get marked down on that either.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, guys, stay away from it. <laughs> I um, like six years ago, I gave myself hyperkalemia and I ended up in hospital overnight um, purely because I was messing around with diuretics and trying to manipulate my water. And it, it ended up backfiring on me. And I had full body cramps. The so hyperkalemia is an abnormally high level of potassium. And you can stop your heart so i didn't realize the effects of this and of course you know bodybuilding i want to do everything that i can to to be the best in the wind and, and to be and to be dry right and so that's that's the kind of the extent that, that that people can take themselves to and i certainly did and yeah there's some real things that can happen i'll never forget i was i was cramped up that hard i had a my, my daughter was about i think she was about eight months old at the time and I could move less than what she could move around at the time. I couldn't, it was, my whole body was just like paralyzed. It was, it was the scariest thing I'd I'd ever really experienced at the time. So yeah, that would me out. There's no like, there is a real. I know we can joke about it, but it, it's a it's a real issue when people do get to that stage. And, and honestly, I find that there is only a really small window that people have that, that that prevents them from either crossing the line over into that point or staying just below it. And I just think these days it's, it's not worth the risk. No. Yeah, and if you're worried about that anyway, like you're just
1: too fat, and like mm-hmm. this is a gross generalization, but you're just too fat. Like diet for two more weeks. Do another show, whatever it is. Mm. Like, don't don't think, oh, I'm not prepared. Better pop these bad boys and hope I don't get caught. Or in my federation, it doesn't matter. It's like, just do another show. There's always other shows. It's not worth the risk.
2: Even outside uh, outside of diuretic use, when uh, dehydration was a common practice for peaking in the natural federations, that was it was quite a common piece. Like each season, there'd be someone that would end up
1: with passing out, some sort of, some sort of renal
2: issue of some yeah. sort, just common. Whereas I think these days, like I said, we are definitely the, the mean average quality of coaching out there is much much higher.
1: Mm-hmm. I, think I think we've had a reduced incidence in refeeding as well, because right, like yeah. I haven't heard of any claims with that. Yeah, I, I haven't. Either. There was actually a paper that's re, uh, a case study that was published um, for a bodybuilder where it was like classes refeeding now as well. I think it was in it's a European one. They submitted in um, like a few years ago. I think it was 2017 that it occurred, and it has recently seen publication, So if we do a video on this, or will try and get it flashed up on the screen or something like that. We can put the links in. Mm-hmm. So refeeding does occur and it's been identified in bodybuilding. Uh, I've, from my knowledge, I would say that refeeding would be even harder to make occur than, than hyponatremia. Mm-hmm. I would think like that's something that you really have to screw up on to a refeeding syndrome. Well, we're about to get into the recovery. We've got to try and wrap up pretty quickly as yeah. well. But it's perfect segue for the recovery because- Refeeding is what can occur in the recovery if (laughs) you're super, super low EA. So Mm -hmm. potentially not a peak week thing, but um, from where the like incidences have occurred that like anecdotally that I've been made aware of, it's been in the recovery. So it's been within that two weeks of um, like shows ending, prep ending that they then go into that from there.
0: Yeah. So as we, can we please define refeeding? Because a lot of people know, all right, you've just exited a comp prep. It's time to eat but what exactly does refeeding mean?
1: Refeeding w- syndrome was first um, observed in uh, like eating disorder wards with, in hospitals with patients who were anorexic, bulimic, and they were, I mean, I forget the BMI parameters, but they were like so so wasted away and so light for their body that they'd been starving themselves for such a chronic period of time. And so what they were doing was they were giving them bags of IV um like an in, intravenous nutrients and then people were experiencing some like crazy unforeseen sort of like side effects or direct effects from the administration and so we were seeing they were seeing things like from like hypernutrient they were seeing things it basically like, stems from an electrolyte imbalance just yeah. like so yeah. yeah and so like their whole body would swell right mm. It was like, um, you know, anyone seen like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory or yeah. like Willy yeah. Wonka, and the kid yeah. turns into the blueberry. It's like that without the color blue. Mm-hmm. And is- I think the main risk is um, is just heart heart failure due to imbalance of magnesium and potassium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think
0: it's important that we distinguish that because obviously in this realm using a refeed.
1: Yeah, it's a very true. common term. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. So
0: refeed is very different to experiencing refeeding. Yes.
1: Yes. Good distinction. <laughs> thank you. <Tara. laughs> but uh, I, do- oh, I want to hear um, what, what is the goal of the recovery phase and
3: like, how would you define it? Let's, let's start with that. So really, we just want to be able to get our baseline level of calories back up as quickly as possible. I know that uh, years ago, it was a really common practice to try to gradually reverse diet your way up. And we found that this just contributes to a whole lot more contraindications. Uh, now, what we what we suggest better is uh, root... Re- recovering calories to within 10% of, of maintenance level um, within the first one to two weeks after competition um, and then increasing it back to a maintenance caloric level and then above by an extra 10-20% over the course of the first month uh, post-competition. Keeping within reason as well that the body is has made a whole lot of physiological changes along the time so you're not going to be able to uh, intake as much uh, without putting on some, a little bit of extra fat gain but we don't want to try to minimize, minimize that fat gain. We actually want that to be there. We need to get ourselves to a healthy level of body fat in order to just like be be better hormonally functioning so we want to actually gain that body fat and we also want to make sure that we are reducing training volume down to facilitate recovery that recovery period is really all about making sure that we can recognize we've just gone through this grueling process that we have put our body through that is just it's just wanting to go hey dude stop like why are you smashing me so much like just 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 let me sit and and recover from this and it's really important that we can focus on it from a root positive aspect of thanking our bodies for being able to respond to what we've just abused them through and then being able to come out the other end and going, look, you know, I'm going to be easy on you and we can build ourselves back up in a nice gentle way. Um, and gentle does not mean slow. Gentle means we're getting back to a normal level of functioning. So the goals that we are wanting to look for uh, in that recovery period is, am I able to intake a sufficient amount of nutrients and still feel okay? How fast can I get up to my uh, established new um energy availability and then how are we able to get ourselves to a level of training volume that is reduced while we're still being active along the way um, that is going to be very contextually specific as well uh, and will depend on, a lot on how the, the prep has been done but This is just assuming that everything's gone well Um, over the course of six to eight weeks. We should be in a position whereby we have gained a sufficient level of body fat and restored it um, to be able to mitigate some of the regulated hormonal effects that occur, um, but we cannot avoid during a prep unless we're using physiological, super physiological doses of hormones. Um, And then as well, being able to make sure that the focus is on recovery um, and the food focus is greatly reduced as well. So being able to continue following the plan I think that's an extremely important point to make we want to make sure that we're still not deviating from a whole lot of different food sources and and, and meal frequencies and and, and meal timings, but we we want to make sure that we can still maintain uh, an element of positive food focus without having it becoming a, a huge obsession moving forward. Uh, and, and that is gradually reduced over time over that six to eight week period uh, is essentially straight after a competition. If you don't have a um, high food focus at all and you just go completely in the opposite direction, you go, no, I don't care about it at all. Um, unconsciously, your food focus becomes higher. And so you are then seeking out uh, different ways in which you can increase satiety and increase that dopamine rush that you will be getting from all the things that you've neglected to do before a comp pro.
0: Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search the bodybuilding dietitians. See you there.
1: Well said. very, Very. I think you covered everything, mate. Did you just, as Brandon was signing out, did you just take on the spirit of Brandon? I didn't even know he signed out. Is he gone? <laughs> he, he oh no! And go. Oh. Man, he's, he's strict. It's all good. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was looking like, to um, hearing
3: his response. No, I'm, I'm, I'm
1: good. Mate, you nailed it. I don't have anything to add. Mm. All, all I would, um, all I would say is the recovery is not the anabolic rebound. It is the opposite. Mm. Your body is physiologically primed to store fat and just not prioritise muscle gain at all all your internal physiological drivers are like completely out and so it is not the anabolic rebound there is no such thing and then I, like i look i shouldn't say that for people who are four standard deviations away from the mean they may be able to anabolically rebound after a prep phase right if they have a propensity to just always put on muscle regardless of the state they're in the energetic state they might be able to do it but or you might potentially regain some lost muscle that you lost yeah. at the end of prep. Yeah. But like for the majority of people in the mean, so like 80% of the population, you're not, like your recovery is not the anabolic rebound. If anyone says that to you, just ignore it. Contact the bodybuilding dietitians. okay? <laughs> Business plug here right now. But seriously, contact them. They'll put you on the straight and narrow. The other thing is, is that as Kyle noted, Brandon noted, we've all noted at some point, there's an intrinsic relationship and it's and it's a synergistic symbiotic relationship between energy availability and body fat percentage. And there's uh, – what, what I've observed in the evidence-based community is there's like these camps where it's like it's only body fat that really affects you or it's only energy availability. I see these people, some of the top sort of like dietetic practitioners within Australia um, and some exercise physiologists where they're like attributing it all to EA. You can still have a high body fat percentage and lose your period. Well, like, yes, you can if your energy availability is low, like chronically, but that's like really hard. And that person has to be really, really adherent and live a very highly stressed life and do that. That, that, Mm. That's probably a harder life than a 20-week contest prep. (laughs) Like when you think about it, right? And the same can be said, like you can get, you can have high energy availability and get extremely lean and then still shut your hormones off. But typically it exists when we've got the two trending in the same direction, lower energy availability, lower body fat, and then hormones become affected, systems become affected, our psychological state becomes affected as well. I think there's 10 different systems associated that that, that the evidence informed community is acknowledged at this point, right? They both have to get back up. So like Carl said, you got to get fatter, mm. you got to get your EA up. Mm-hmm. Typically yeah. EA can get up pretty easily. Like that's something that can come up within a few weeks, right? And your body restores, but fat takes a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's exactly what Tiara and I are both implementing at the moment. And because our EA or mainly our body fat are on different levels. It's it's very interesting because Tiara is taking, we're going to basically do an episode on this as well, but Tiara's body fat is, is creeping up a bit more slowly than mine, or I'm being quite significantly more aggressive because like uh, I'm, my hormones are trashed by the end of prep, especially mm-hmm. my testosterone. And as Kyle said, like you need to embrace that weight gain. And if you think you can, essentially like embrace the anabolic window and, and not add much body fat, then you're just wrong. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's something that is uh, is quite different to my last preparation or last recovery phase is that I'm really embracing this weight gain still in a structured manner. Like I'm not stuffing my face and gaining 10 kilos in a week, but at the same time, I'm not going at half a kilo a month. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm taking that medium ground.
0: And I think it's really important that we're using objective measures there. Like we both got blood work done Pre-prep, during prep, post prep, and we're using that as well. And mm. as we know, like my blood markers, I'm still within a healthy physiological range. Yeah, you nailed my, it. hormonal even though <laughs> well done, TR.
1: shame even on though, you, Jack. Even <laughs> though I got
0: to the level of hey, leanness. Was my coach.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's even though I got to the level of leanness required for my category. But again, I'm a I'm a fitness competitor. Jack is a bodybuilder, mm. right? And then according to his objective measures, according to his blood test results, obviously his testosterone levels are significantly down, Mm. unfortunately.
1: And your EA didn't get that low either. So like your lowest periods were around like what, Mm -hmm. like 2,100 cows? Yeah. Across the week, they were more probably like 2,400. Yeah. Okay. So 2,400 cows. And then your stage weight was, it was about 76. You know what i mean so you like even factoring like energy expenditure through activity which you're not even going to be expending that much calories yeah. for your I training didn't do any scheduled cardio so. yeah so you're going to be looking at an ea of 28 to 31 mm-hmm. and Yeah. and that's the lowest that you got and you still manage to do that but so i ultimate, guess to clue ultimate- people in like my when I say we had, I had low testosterone, it was almost like it couldn't have gone any lower. Let's mm. just say that. Mm. So. Almost. <laughs> YouTube videos to come outlining this. Yeah. Okay. Another another plug.
0: But I think a lot of it, and you can speak to this, you get to a point where you crave having more body fat on you because mm. when you get that lean, it hurts. You feel so uncomfortable. And then you can truly ask yourself, you're like, when did I actually feel my best? Like, when did I feel confident? When did I feel healthy? When did I feel like I had energy? Mm. And then you can ask yourself what body weight was that?
1: Yeah. Mm. And that, that's exactly what I'm doing. And I, when I was on the way down, I, I can imagine, or I can remember being around like 82, 83 kilos and still feeling pretty decent, having good energy throughout the day. My food focus wasn't crazy. I wasn't trying to volumize all my food. And that's kind of where I'm going to try and get back up to fairly rapidly mm. at this point now. And um, that's, that's basically my game plan and then commence a slow rate of gain from And what's your intake averaging now for about 4,600? No, slightly more like on the lower 4,000. Okay. Yeah. um, It's it's literally increasing every day as Mm. we speak. And Jack
0: would be following more of those 3DMJ recovery diet guidelines, which recommends that you gain five to 10% of your stage weight within the first four to eight weeks post show. Mm. And the leaner that you were on stage going closer to that 10% of your stage weight. Mm. If you weren't as lean, probably going closer to that 5% of your yeah. stage weight.
1: And that's something that we endorse as well. Mm-hmm. So on that, we're going to sort of start wrapping up, but we got to talk about, I guess the inspiration behind this whole thing. Yeah. What we're going to be doing. So Alex,
0: yeah, what are we doing?
1: We, we have a prep program that we conceived. When did we conceive this baby Kyle? <laughs> Two and a half years ago. Yeah.
3: 2018, 2018,
1: end of 2018. We um, ran it in 2019. Jack and Tiara came on with that as well. And 2020 with COVID, um, we obviously COVID interrupted us. We were going to do national tours with it, start presenting the evidence-based preps. So like what we should see in a prep, what we want to encourage more competitors to be doing themselves. So that way we're just making the public aware of what an evidence-informed prep would look like and best practices would look like. So that way they can make their best informed decisions, right? It's not about saying... You're doing the wrong thing and we're the police and we're going to give you in trouble. It's just about saying, hey, this is what a good one looks like. Now that you know that, please keep that in mind and understand that these are the health considerations if you don't. So that way they're making their best informed decisions from there. So we've got seminars coming up. We're going to be touring the country at the end of June, start of July. So keep an eye out for that. We'll have tickets on the Sports Nutrition Australia website. So that's sportsnutrition.org.au. And then we'll have an intake for the coaches, right? Um, to then come through and get accredited in this. Now, there is a, like a prerequisite criteria. So we want them to be certificate in applied sports nutrition or at least accredited sports nutritionists or accredited sports dietitians, ASDs. So that way you've at least got the cover. Um, and then this is a both a theoretical and a practical program. Uh, it, it lasts for approximately six months. The practical component, depending on where you're at, if you've got some body composition goals or anything like that, might take twelve months. Just depending if you've got certain things that you're working towards. Say you're starting a prep, and then you've got a diet for twenty weeks. Well, then we'd start the the, the practical side of things after that occurred, because we wouldn't want to get in the way of um, your competition aspirations. But um, that's that that program. We look to take on ten people a year. We don't want to take on any more. This isn't something that we're looking to farm out. Um, you know, like like in like in factory lines, and then just get flood the market with prep coaches. So the certificates there. Uh, if people have X science, um, X fears, nutrition science, human nutrition, whatever it is, um, but you don't have the cert done, then typically your registration will be with Essa or Nutrition Australia or APRA. Those don't provide a sport nu- sports nutrition policy for you, so that's why we want the cert. But you get credit for the certificate then. So any subject that you do. Um, that you've already done with your transcripts, we then just credit that directly, recognize you for it, and then just fill in the gaps. You don't have to study as much. You don't have to pay as much. Um, and then you come into the prep program from there. If you've just done the cert, then we want you to go through, you can do the prep program, but when we then want you to go through a post one of the postgraduate pathways, or, you, or you've you got to go into a relevant bachelor's program, whether it's human nutrition, ex-phys, exercise and sports science, whatever it is, um, or we've got the four uh, referral that get guaranteed entry pathways at the moment, which is the IOC, the IOPN, holistic performance Institute, and then AUT, Auckland university of technology. And the reason for that is you've got to be in order to start practicing like that, you've got to be meeting the open and graduate accreditation criteria for that. Awesome. And I guess if people have questions about that, where can they, where can they head to? Just hit, hit us up. Um, just email info at sportsnutrition.com association.com um, that's the email to hit up the team. Otherwise prep accreditation at sports is the email that we've got for the prep program specifically. And look like my, if I'm gonna give it a sales pitch, my sales pitch is if that sounds hard, please then just don't do it. That's an indication that this really shouldn't be a career for you. Mm-hmm. And if you're like, I really, really wanna do this, understand that that's the minimum. And then we still want you doing further continued education and then being a part of the program on an ongoing basis, whether it's contributing to updates as the um, evidence gets updated or contributing to research pro- uh, papers that we'll look to publish and contribute to the industry to keep propelling it forward. Because even though it might seem like we have a lot of information, we actually don't, and we need a lot more case studies, case series, and bodybuilding both natural and enhanced um, you know, research publications to help us inform our practice moving forward. And I mean, I think if people want to get a better idea of what it's about, they can also attend the seminars as well, because yeah. this program will be happening every year. So you're not going to miss out. And the seminars are, seminars are a great way to get like a foundation of what we might be um, teaching at throughout the program. Definitely. What are the seminar ticket prices? That's a good question. <laughs> do, we, do we remember? Is it It's like $179 or something like that? Is that it?
0: 149
1: 149. I may yeah, have just yeah, yeah.
0: given you guys a discount.
1: <laughs> 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 Looks like it's 149, guys. So thanks, Tiara.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Save 20 bucks, buy That's a nice it. lunch.
1: That's it. That's
3: it. Yeah. The and by no means does anyone need to, like, the seminars are open to everybody, right? So we want to make sure that even if you want to come along and learn a little bit more just about Contest Prep yourself and to check to see if you are doing some things that could be potentially hazardous to yourself later on, it'll be a really good idea for you to, to just go and check. In and have a look and see um, what kind of things that you can learn from it, or, and even take back to your coach and kind of give him a little stiff about it, and go, "Hey, uh, I actually saw this from the accredited governing body, and um, how come like my EA is is significantly reduced?" Yeah, on nine
1: hundred calories, twenty weeks yeah. out. Why am I eating rice, r- rice and uh, rice cakes and fish? <laughs> um so look the seminars will run for about three hours depending on the city it'll be either in the evening through a weeknight or it'll be on a saturday at some point so we're going to be running two throughout the week on saturday for a two-week period come check it out everyone's welcome not it's not just coaches not just clients anyone that's interested in this we just want to get the information out there yeah
0: yeah and there's nothing else like this currently being offered in australia so it's very exciting that we're all going to be traveling together to these major cities and presenting and guys the presenters will be everyone who spoke on this podcast today. So
1: plus a few guests, plus, plus some guests in each plus city. Yeah. Some
0: guests, which is really exciting. So yeah. So we'll have Alex, we'll have Kyle, we'll have Brandon, we'll have Joey, we'll have Jack and myself and more guests who are involved in this space. So personally, man, I wouldn't miss it.
1: <laughs> Thanks I'll for the there. awesome plug. Thank you. Yes, you will.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, should we wrap up there? That's us. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories. Make sure to tag everyone that was involved in this chat, and I'll have all of their Instagram links below, including all the information relevant to the seminars. But have a great day or a great evening, and we will catch you next time.
3: Thanks. See you guys. Thanks, Tiara.